Hello there. Today we have the incredible opportunity to chat with Dr. Dilip Geste from the University of California in San Diego. Dr. Geste, thank you so much for joining us. I'm a huge fan, as we discussed, and it is an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much. It's really my pleasure being here, and I want to thank you for your invitation for this podcast. Oh, it's our pleasure. Um, we were wondering, could you please tell us a bit about who you are and how you came to study wisdom? Yes. So I was born and grew up in India. Uh, and so growing up, um, we study one of the scriptures called Gita. Uh, and that scripture, which was written thousands of years BCE, <clears throat> is really part of daily life of Indians. I mean, it is considered a compendium on wisdom in everyday life. And also, like other Eastern cultures, there is a belief that older people are wiser and older people are respected. So both those things, that there is such a thing as wisdom and older people are wiser, were the things I grew up with. I didn't even think about that as there being any other option to that. And so I got into psychiatry because I was fascinated by Freud's books on interpretation of dreams and everyday errors of life. And I really wanted to study brain and mind. And actually it was for that reason that I went to medical school to be a psychiatrist and to study brain and mind. And I was interested in research and there was a course limit to what one could do in terms of research in India. So after um, some training in India, I moved to the States uh, with the idea of going to NIH. There's a mecca of research uh, in the US and I went there, I did my research fellowship and then I moved to San Diego. So all this time, my research was on serious mental illnesses, specifically schizophrenia. And then after moving to San Diego, I moved more into geriatric psychiatry side. So I started studying schizophrenia and aging. And my friend said, why are you doing that? It must be so depressing because schizophrenia is uh, an illness for which there is no treatment or cure and aging is all gloom and doom. So the combination would be terrible. What I found was the exact opposite. I found that as people with schizophrenia got older, they started doing better mentally, psychologically, not physically. Physically, the health goes down. But psychologically, their symptoms went down. Substance abuse, smoking went down. They became more adherent to treatment. That was surprising. How, how come that happened? Um, of course, there is survivor bias always. In any studies of older people, these are people who have survived in the old age. Nonetheless, and I wondered if this was restricted to schizophrenia or this was a normal phenomenon. So we did a study of people in the general population from age 20 to 100. And we found that as they became older, the physical health declined. But mental health improved. They became happier. And so that was really intriguing. How come people get happier as they get older? in spite of declining their physical health and so many other problems that arise with aging. And then suddenly it struck me that this is something actually I was brought up thinking, that there is such a thing as wisdom 
and that older people are wiser. Is that really true? And so that's the first time actually I thought about doing research in this area. And so that's how I got into studying, beginning to study wisdom. So I started looking at the literature uh, and uh, it just fascinated me so much. And so this was about 10, 12 years ago. Uh, and that the more I got into it, the more fascinated I became. And so, so that's how, so to answer your question, it's a long story, but uh, that's how I got into research on wisdom and aging. Amazing. We love long stories here. Um, and you kind of uh, touched on the next question that I wanted to ask, um, but just if I could press a bit further, um, you know, as a geriatric neuropsychiatrist, um, what do you think psychiatry brings to the table in terms of studying and understanding wisdom? Right. So that, that's a very good point because, as you know, the empirical research on wisdom really started in the 1970s with uh, Baltis and Baltis hmm. at uh, Max Planck Institute in Berlin and Vivian Clayton at uh, University of Southern California. Uh, and since then it has been growing. But most of the research is has been done by gerontologists, psychologists, and sociologists. There have been very few neuroscientists or physicians who have been involved in the research on wisdom. So mm -hmm. there's a meeting that um, we used to have annually for wisdom researchers at uh, Howard Nussbaum's Center for Practical Wisdom. I was the only MD who was there in that meeting. And one of the very few neuroscientists, I mean, there were a few others, but not too many. Uh, and that was, so I was really surprised at the same time, I, we can think about wisdom in a different way, I thought, than other people did. Uh, and not necessarily a better way, but it's a different way. Because I've, I've been working mainly with people with schizophrenia, other serious mental illnesses. And I'm a physician, so my job is to treat people. I give them medications, other biological treatments to see how they do better. Uh, and also I'm a geriatric psychiatrist, so I focus on aging. Um, so I found that my perspective was different from that of other researchers in wisdom because of my interest in biology, especially neurobiology. Also thinking about wisdom as almost as a diagnostic category. Again, I'm using the word diagnosis in a very wrong way here. Diagnosis means pathology, not like that. But, um, so as a psychiatrist, as a physician, when I see a patient, what do I do? One of the first job is to diagnose, to make a diagnosis of whatever illnesses the person may have. And then I develop, sort of decide on the treatment. As a diagnosis typically requires some criteria. So you need, the patient needs to have these symptoms, not other ones, the duration, et cetera, et cetera. So when I started thinking about wisdom, I said that, I must begin with definition of wisdom. I must begin with criteria for wisdom. Uh, we must have some instrument to measure level of wisdom. And then we must also look at the biology. And so that was my perspective. So instead of sort of 
and as i said there is nothing not a right or wrong way it's just a different way so i find number of other researchers in wisdom who are doing great studies comparing different cultural groups for example uh, and those are very important studies but that's not something i had background in so my background was different so i think what psychiatry as a psychiatrist uh, i bring in is focus on medicine in the sense i think about wisdom as a health factor wisdom is associated with better health better physical health mental health cognitive health more longevity and that means that loss of wisdom is associated with disease or disability and so that's how actually i did some work on what happens when people lose wisdom and what are the conditions in which this happens um, so i don't want to digress from where you're going but um, i think it is probably this focus on disease diagnosis and treatment uh, that that was different at the same time i changed my focus also because i stopped thinking about disease when i talk about wisdom so i think i now i feel really that i'm learning a lot myself and that's the most fun part for me that's remarkable so i just wanted to say before you go on i'm very curious say um about this you know conditions under which people lose wisdom you just mentioned it in passing but i i don't think it's a big digression i'd be very curious to hear what you uh, what sort of work you did in that so uh again if i'm digressing bring me back but when i started studying wisdom as i said the first thing was how do you define wisdom and the only way to define anything is by looking at the literature and the literature on wisdom started in antiquity because all the religions and philosophies include wisdom so my first paper on wisdom was actually paper on wisdom in the gita that's the indian scripture and so we use a qualitative quantitative mixed method study we had a medical anthropologist as a consultant to find out what was wisdom in the gita associated with what different characteristics were described as characteristics of a wise person as well as characteristics of an unwise person and so that is how we found out how the gita defined but of course that is definition from thousands of years ago so then we looked at the modern western definition by looking at these papers published since baltis and baltis and um even clayton started their work and so originally i thought these two would be very different because that's ancient indian culture and this is modern western i was really surprised to find they were very similar very similar and to be that meant that the concept of wisdom hasn't changed over centuries across geographic periods why probably it is bio- because it is biologically based and so where would it be best biologically of course in the brain so where in the brain would it be best right so that is how i started thinking about neurobiology of wisdom so what is wisdom wisdom is a personality trait with specific components and probably we can talk about those components later but very briefly here right now for this purpose so they include empathy and compassion emotional regulation self reflection acceptance of diverse perspectives decisiveness social decision make social advising and lastly spirituality so when i started thinking about neurobiology of wisdom how do i do that so i started with google search for neurobiology and wisdom what did i find zero nothing because most of the neurobiology researchers they didn't think about wisdom as a real entity so nobody used it at all so i said okay let's go to the second step which is looking at the components of wisdom and their neurobiology empathy and neurobiology 
many studies compassion and neurobiology emotional regulation and neurobiology or their opposite opposite of compassion is antisocial behavior right so and we found quite a few studies of brain imaging neuroanatomy neurophysiology neuropathology of these entities and on that basis we developed a model and we'll talk about that later i'm sure prefrontal cortex and limbic striatum but i said that really doesn't tell us how wisdom is based because that tells us about the components of wisdom right so how do we find out neurobiology of wisdom as a total entity so i said probably what we should do is look at experiments of nature in which people lost wisdom so people who were wise they had some brain injury or brain disease and then they became unwise let us find out where was the damage and so that so michel so that was the origin of that question about losing wisdom so i thought of these because the other way around is hard to do in the sense people who were very unwise and then they became wise that's hard to find out with their brain but this is easier to find out again as a i'm a psychiatrist and a neurologist also so um i know that when people have brain injury certain kind or brain disease clearly different parts of the brain are affected and there are different behavioral effects right so i wanted to find out where was the injury or where was the lesion in a disease that led to loss of wisdom but there again the problem was nobody had used the word wisdom so we had to look at the case histories reported in the literature of brain trauma and its effects on behavior and i'm sure you both uh, have heard of that uh, phineas gage uh, is probably the most famous person in neuroscience right mm-hmm. so he was a construction worker in vermont in the 1860s um, he was thought to be a nice man wise man helpful kind compassionate good person and then he had that big injury when this iron rod went through his head came out amazingly he survived actually he had no physical trauma except for blindness his iq didn't change memory didn't change the only thing that changed was his personality and his personality if you look at the description given by his physician dr harlow it is exact antithesis of wisdom so everything i mentioned in wisdom empathy compassion emotional regulation self reflection accepting different uh, divergent perspective you can see that they all were lost in him so then the question is where was the brain damage so his skull was preserved not his brain his skull was preserved so in 1990 there was a paper published in science that looked at where the damage was in his skull and they used computer technology and um um also this projectile uh, trajectories or and so forth but they said that the damage was restricted to prefrontal cortex especially left more than the right and there have been dozens such cases reported since then these are called modern day phineas gages who and again nobody used the word wisdom but so i read the descriptions of those people but a similar thing they had some brain damage they survived came out no other change except for change in personality so that is with a trauma what about disease that actually i knew more easily because uh, that was type of dementia called 
frontotemporal dementia. And so that's a dementia that occurs in 50s rather than 60s, 70s. And there's no memory loss until much later. The only change is in personality. And again, if you look at the description of symptoms of frontotemporal dementia, exact antithesis of wisdom, exact antithesis, the loss of self-reflection, loss of emotional regulation, um, loss of empathy, compassion, etc. Uh, where is that image? As the name suggests, it's in the front part of the brain, prefrontal cortex, and part of the temporal lobe. And so putting these together, we found that the same regions that were involved in components of wisdom were also involved in the wisdom overall, prefrontal cortex and limbic striatum. So that, that's a long-winded answer to your question, yeah. Michelle. Oh, fascinating. This is very interesting. It answered another one of our questions, which um, essentially was, you know, um, you've looked at these clinical po- populations like frontotemporal dementia and schizophrenia, all fascinating work. Um, and I essentially want to ask, you know, what, it is, what is it about this neurodiversity that helps us understand something new about wisdom um, or helps us understand wisdom more deeply um, but I suppose that's also the factor that, you know, maybe just looking at wisdom development in itself is just a lot more difficult rather than something like this. Absolutely. Measuring wisdom development is very difficult uh, because we don't have data. People, you know, we don't use wisdom scales in um, um, most people, let alone children and adolescents and so on. That is what is needed. But actually what happens is most of the studies of wisdom are done in healthy people. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. at I mean, going to Baltis and Baltis to um, modern day, most of the studies are done, uh, not necessarily healthiest people, but really people from the community who can complete, who, are, who want to participate in research, who have reasonably good cognition so they can participate. And so that's very helpful. I mean, that's essential that we do that. But we also need to study wisdom in people who have some brain damage. Because if it is neurobiologically based, and these are people with some kind of brain damage, not necessarily frontotemporal dementia, but any other kind, how does wisdom develop or is maintained in those people? Do they have wisdom in the first place, right? So, so that's where schizophrenia comes into play. Um, so I've talked about schizophrenia because that was my area of research for a very long time, years and years. I mean, when I became a psychiatric researchers at NIH, the first thing I did was to get into schizophrenia research because I was working in a schizophrenia research lab. And so I published multiple papers and so on and so forth. But schizophrenia is a very interesting disease because, so typically the age of onset of schizophrenia is in um, late teenagers or early 20s, at the most early 30s. At the same time, schizophrenia is a neurodevelopmental disease. In the sense, even there have been studies of one-year-old kids, they videotaped them, and they found that the one-year-old kids who went on to develop schizophrenia were different from others even at the age of one or two years. Their motor uh, abilities were different. And they had some um, other learning deficits, if you will, or some other things that, you know, it's like Michelle's your work on autism, and autism, I mean, clearly it is associated with this uh, cognitive deficits, cognitive empathy deficits, right? And actually at one time, schizophrenia was thought to be 
senile autism. There's a similarity between, which is wrong. I mean, the terminology is totally wrong. But just to give an idea about the similarity between autism and schizophrenia. But in schizophrenia, what happens is, although they have cognitive impairment of some kind, it's not like Alzheimer's at all, very mild cognitive impairment, but, but it is there. And, but no s- symptoms of schizophrenia until much later, until 20 years later, 25, 30 years later. So they have a brain that had some deficit almost from birth, definitely from very early childhood. Then they developed the illness and then they, and the illness, um, the trajectory typically is not very good. I mean, the relapses, remissions, chronic course, disability, all of those things continue. Although as they get older, if they survive into older age, they start doing better. But studying wisdom in that population is really interesting. Because now we are studying a population that doesn't have dementia, but that has some mild cognitive impairment for most of their lifetime. And in addition, they have psychosis, right? So what? So that's how we published that paper uh, on wisdom in schizophrenia using this three-dimensional wisdom scale. Actually, we cited your paper, Michelle, on you uh, and Khan's uh, paper on uh, uh, wisdom in this high-functioning autism. Uh, and some really very interesting similarities that uh, overall level of wisdom was clearly lower in schizophrenia than in comparison subject. Not a surprise because schizophrenia is associated with cognitive impairment. And these are people who have such severe psychotic symptoms, right? So that's not surprising at all. But we found that about a third of the patients had wisdom scores similar to that of non-psychiatric population. So that's really amazing that one third, which is not a small number, one third of the patient, in spite of the cognitive impairment, in spite of the psychosis and all of those things, they still had normal levels of wisdom. And more importantly, even in that population, wisdom was associated with better well-being, more happiness, better functioning in every which way. And this applied especially to reflective wisdom than to cognitive or affective. And I know that it's similar to your finding, Michelle, in uh, this high-functioning autism. So, so I think it's really important to study that kind of population because it will teach us more. You know, these are studies that don't answer a question. There is more questions. But then it is important to have those questions. And then you try to seek answers to those questions rather than the same questions trying to answer again and again. Mm-hmm. Um. And we'll definitely move on from this in a quick second, but I was just curious, um, was there anything particularly special about that one third of the sample um, of um, those with schizophrenia that had normal levels of wisdom? Yeah, so this is a, I mean, and this is a finding we have consistently seen in other positive traits also. For example, we published a paper on optimism in schizophrenia. Uh, we also published a paper on wisdom in HIV-infected people. And consistently, we find that although the overall level is lower, whether it is wisdom, resilience, optimism, anything you take, about a third of these patients have normal levels. And so these are the people probably with high level of biological as well as psychosocial resilience. Uh, They probably have better cognitive reserve. Mm -hmm. 
and they probably were also lucky probably in some ways in the that they were brought up in better uh, social and familial environment they had more social support uh, they got better treatment but still it's really fascinating that one third which is not a small proportion of people with serious mental illnesses uh, have normal levels of wisdom resilience optimism mm-hmm. and there's something to learn from them how can they do that right so because that will be helpful for the so called healthier people in the community who may, may have lower levels of wisdom so how can we improve their wisdom by studying again these people with schizophrenia for example well, i also ask a follow up to that now i wonder what you think of this i know sometimes for example australian aboriginals originally were diagnosed that the the shamans they were diagnosed as being schizophrenic um and i think that's been very much challenged but this notion that schizophrenia or these types of states are associated with transcendent sort of sometimes say wisdom states themselves i wonder what your opinion is you know that, that that's a very good question i mean this is i know there are people who believe that schizophrenia is not a disease that it's really a way of life and so on i don't agree with that at all actually i must say that i think schizophrenia is a disease uh, and it needs uh, treatment um so so, the, so you know sometimes you can get hallucinations delusions as a part of say temporal lobe epilepsy or something but it is a disease so but once but even after we accept that it is a disease why do people get specific kinds of delusions or hallucinations so so that reflects their psyche as well as environment and that is something unique actually to each patient so each person is different each person is unique and so that is where actually this uh michel what you talk about this transcendental transcendental uh, actions activities etc would come into play that you know again in science you know how much you don't know <laughs> right uh, and so so there a lot for science to know about schizophrenia and about wisdom uh but at least we um need to think about these as important questions in line with them since we're talking about self transcendence and you know it being such a transformative um experience um you know even though there's not a lot of um neuroscience literature on wisdom per se there is quite a few studies on self transcendence uh in neuroscience particularly in association with drugs uh like as uh, psilocybin um do you think that those authors uh you know do you think that their definition of self transcendence also relates to your definition of self transcendence and wisdom or do you think they're looking at something different so there are great questions again and we need clearly more research on that uh, on that um so the definitions may vary but i think the basically they're similar i mean going to something more concrete like meditation or mindfulness let's take a look so meditation and mindfulness they have biological effects studies have shown that people who practice meditation for so many hours on the brain mri their white matter integrity change increases sometimes even the gray matter volume may increase uh and this happens in uh, healthy people but also in people with certain kinds of uh, pathologies and so these things which 
biological science dismissed at one point meditation and mindfulness you know i mean yoga i mean these are not really uh, scientific they are actually they are biological things as much as psychosocial uh, aspects so the same thing applies to transcendental um, meditation philosophy you call it we just need to learn at the same time we need to study them empirically that is important i think sometimes of issue that i have with some of that research is it is best more on personal thinking or personal philosophy mm-hmm. that's why nothing wrong with that. that that should be but it's good to have some empirical measures to study that because that way somebody else can try to replicate the finding and either replicate or not replicate but we learn more about that and you touched on um an interesting point that also um quite bothers me you know there's not a lot of uh, direct empirical studies um on the neuroscience of wisdom as we've uh, discussed um why do you think that is do you think there's also a resistance to studying wisdom in neuroscience i think that i blame the hardcore scientists including neuroscientists <laughs> for that what has happened is they have that over the centuries the hardcore scientists so called hardcore scientists had dismissed what they called fuzzy constructs for example consciousness was dismissed for centuries as a psychological philosophical entity not a real biological one today we know the neurobiology of consciousness inside out practically i mean no question about that people dismiss emotion cognition as something psychological philosophical resilience resilience that oh nobody there resilience today we know the molecular biology of resilience today we there are animal models for resilience and so on and so i always say that that is the issue that these hardcore scientists have um, with wisdom why it is not you know why other people are not studying it neurosciences um, so when i first started studying wisdom actually a couple of my colleagues told me who are my good friend they said if you study wisdom don't tell anybody you are studying wisdom nobody will take you seriously because it's not a science it's just philosophy and religion and they said actually you will make a yourself a laughing stock of uh, neuroscience organizations <laughs> so i was actually delighted just last year actually i gave a distinguished annual lecture at uh, one of the most prominent neuroscience uh, meet <laughs> associations but but still there is that bias that persists no question about that in the because they say these are fuzzy constructs how do you define wisdom how do you define resilience well my argument is how do you define stress nobody can define stress there's no major of good major of stress none the only way is find out asking a person whether you feel stressed out and the, because there are no biomarkers of stress that are equally valid and again there is no definite and still nobody questions that stress is a biological entity obviously it is psychosocial but it has major impact on health and even longevity right at the same time i don't want to appear to be totally critical because you need that kind of skepticism whenever something new comes if science must be skeptical whenever new entity comes into play but that is what makes it a better science right i mean if somebody promoted something and then everybody accepted that it will not advance and because many of the thing that have been promoted had turned out to be fake i mean good example in the neuroscience side is this uh, gall right francis gall he had this uh, phrenology 
and he said by you know the skull um those uh, bumps and so and the bump would tell you where uh, something is for many years mm-hmm. yeah for many years he had a journal he was the president of a society he and yet that totally turned out to be fraud right so it is good for science to be skeptical i think that we all need to be skeptical about our own research right uh, because that's how we get better at the same time that skepticism should lead to cynicism where we just dismiss the concepts because our current science doesn't show that it exists but current science is also very limited so i think we need some humility and modesty on our sides mm-hmm. definitely i think that that um those criticisms or arguments do help push science forward absolutely um and i suppose in line with that you know we have um folks even in the uh, in the apologies wisdom community um folks like uh, dr sternberg and dr karami who've said that you know although neurobiology helps carry out or embody wisdom uh they do not view neuropsychological processes as causative of wisdom but rather as in service of affecting it um but why do you think that again you know we've discussed so many reasons why wisdom could Uh, particularly be biological but why do you think studying the brain is so important in addition to everything else because i don't think that you're saying that solely looking at at the brain is sufficient now you you put it very well uh, so wisdom as i said is a personality trait most personality traits are about 50% inherited in the sense 50% i mean you see sometimes 3 and 4 year old kids who are really wise for their age you know they are so compassionate and emotional regulated and and there are some um, and others are not right so so there is no question that partly it is genetically inherited just like resilience optimism uh, neuroticism extroversion introversion they are all are right but only about 50% that means 50% of a trait is affected by environment and behavior and even that first 50% i mentioned inherited the expression of genes is affected by environment and behavior i mean it is like i may have genes for lung cancer but if i don't smoke ever it is unlikely that i will develop lung cancer right so so environment and behavior do affect expression of genes so they have major impact so so it's not a question of nature versus nurture or um, brain versus environment it's not like that i mean it is both because brain affects environment and environment affects brain um but i really think it is important and that's probably it comes because i am a physician uh, and that to neuro uh, neurologist and psychiatrist if you look at the components of wisdom i can identify diseases in which some components are lacking for example autism one of the main features is lack of cognitive empathy the children with autism they have difficulty understanding that somebody else is happy or unhappy or angry they are difficult i mean they are nice people they are kind people so if somebody is crying they will feel sad but they don't they can't understand exactly what is a sort of theory of mind kind of a thing they can't understand somebody else's logic behind or their thinking behind their emotion on the other hand if you take an anti sociopathy anti social personality 
there there is no lack of cognitive empathy there is a lack of affective empathy so they can see somebody crying or hurt and they will be happy uh, and so they use the knowledge so they actually all the knowledge so you know they have good many of these mass murderers and um, terrorists they have good self reflection they have emotional control obviously you know otherwise they won't be able to commit these acts uh, they accept diverse perspectives but they use it to hurt others so they they lack empathy and compassion okay so so what they lack is empathy and compassion okay then let us say go down um in obsessive compulsive disorder there is too much of self reflection the person spends all the time thinking about himself or herself they're so preoccupied about their own thinking and feeling and behaving right so that's an example um so you can actually go through the there is um there's also a syndrome called i forget the exact name it'll come to me friedman syndrome or something like that where the excessive compassion i mean it's <laughs> children so they actually go and hug somebody and and but they don't have the intellectual understanding so they don't have the cognitive understanding but they have a williams syndrome that's what it is williams uh, so my point is this that you can actually see diagnosable diseases that are associated with deficits in specific components of wisdom and again i'm this is sort of oversimplification i mean you know when we talk about neurobiology again one must talk about the risk of oversimplification you know for public understanding we try to make it simple but amongst ourselves we need to make sure that we understand the limitations whatever we propose that is such a good point and there's so many like other challenges in um neurosciences where you raise so many uh great points i don't even know where to start um but i suppose one of the other issues if i'm just to focus on neuroscience for the moment um one of the other issues within neuroscience is the idea of you know measuring neural activity and like where it comes from in the brain so if we look at fmri for instance you know it's more of an indirect uh measurement um so do you think that we do have the tools currently to measure wisdom especially wisdom that's such a complex metacognitive co- construct right no i mean we have to be able to measure it i mean if we can't measure it we should do research on that i mean it's a, almost that because we like anything we, we we got to be able to the measurements are far from perfect and especially when we talk about psychological constructs like personalities there is no objective measure that we know of today for example mm-hmm. if um, let's say again re- resilience optimism antisocial personality neuroticism there are scales for measuring each of these these are self report scales so so these scales you know they have bunch of statements and you say to what extent you agree or disagree for example the you know wisdom scale one of uh, in our questions is um, um that uh, when i'm upset i cannot think logically and so that shows lack of emotional regulation that when i'm upset the emotions take over it now now here i am answering that question so somebody will say how do i know that your answer is 
truthful. And that's definitely a problem with any self-report scales that there can be bias. There is bias. Sometimes intentional bias, sometimes unintentional bias, whatever it is. But we find, we actually publish some studies in which we use a social desirability scale to find out how much bias was there. And we found that actually in research assessments like that, there is not much bias. Because when does the bias come in? If I'm applying for a job, or if you're applying to go to a school and there is this wisdom questionnaire, you know, I will say, oh, yes, I'm the most compassionate person in the world. I'm the most emotional, right? Because I need the job. But when I'm doing it for a research purpose, when the data are uh, anonymous, you know, they're, why should, I mean, it's actually good for me to understand about myself. So I would say where I, so I would give a pretty valid self-report. Now, if I am biased in the sense my own self-perception is biased, then clearly I can't help it. But that that's not a problem usually. I think the big fear is that people make up those things. Are they social desirability? And actually, that doesn't happen in most research cases, so that's not an issue. Um, so, um, so your question was about measurement, and because it is impossible to have objective measures of a personality trait. So, so one something sometimes people say, okay, ask somebody else to rate you. Sure. The problem with that is that person is maybe biased. So if I have to rate somebody, if I like that person, I will give him or her high rating. If I don't like that person, I'll give that person low rating. So I'm as biased. Actually, I'm even more biased probably than I would be for myself, right? So what else do you do? Because personality means you're observing the characteristic patterns of behavior over the lifetime. How can we do that? I mean, unless you videotape somebody or, you know, there's a movie called Truman Show, <laughs> right? So unless we do that, and, but, but even after you do that, who is going to rate those? That this was pro-social versus not. Anyway, my point here is that at this stage, science has not advanced enough to have any objective measures for personality traits. Uh, or many of the psychological traits, just like stress, again, there is no objective measure. So let us go with subjective measures, but let us keep them, let us try to make them as valid, as reliable uh, as possible. So and again, using different kinds of psychometric uh, validities. Uh, so, and so that's the best thing we can do. Mm-hmm. We keep them to then improve them and, you know, finally come to that stage of validity. I absolutely agree. Um, One other point I want to make there is that... Please. So I'm a clinical researcher, but actually I have uh, done different things. I spent uh, quite a bit of time doing some animal research, mice and rats, uh, and also done some work in brain imaging. And, you know, for most people, that research sounds so perfect, right? I mean, animals, you have control group of rats and who, you know, who are similar every which way and you find a difference. Wow. I mean, that's uh, brain imaging. Wow. I mean, this is really measuring, you know, when you can, it sounds so great. All of these areas have severe limitations. Uh, Animal research, for example, again, I'm I'm digressing totally, but I'll wrap it up quickly. Uh, When you have a mouse or a rat you are studying and you inject something into that, on that particular day, that mouse may be unhappy or stressed out. It will have different effect that day than another day when that mouse is happy. Uh, similarly, brain imaging, there are 
literally millions of things that are happening. How do we choose? Because those are the things we can measure. But just because we measure, does it make them more valid? No. So my point here is that when people criticize us for using subjective measures, they don't realize that their objective measures are also limited. Precisely. And I I love your point. It's almost like, you know, you know my questions because um, one of my other questions that I wanted to ask you is um, um, potentially, do you think we'll ever be able to have uh, animal models for wisdom if, let's say, it does have this strong biological basis? That's a very important question. And that's something I have been thinking about for a long time. There is no question that some components of wisdom are present in animals. Empathy and compassion, no question about that. I mean, the pets, we have dogs, uh, or bigger ones like horses and elephants. I mean, they have affection. They, you know, it's really such a, uh, no question about it. And they also, you can see them taking care of their own um, uh, family, their, so on and so forth. So there's no question that empathy, compassion are there in most animals that we can see. Um, Self-reflection likely is there in so there are, in apes, for example. I mean, again, this we have to infer. I think what happens with wisdom in humans, we can give them a scale to complete, and they will complete it. In animals, we can't do that. So there is no self-report measure on which we we are basing the wisdom. So we can't do that. So there, it we are observing them, right? So so that becomes an issue. That how can we observe? spirituality in an animal, right? How can we observe um, acceptance of diverse perspectives? Well, we can infer that based on certain behavior if we watch them for long enough time. And there have been studies like that. Actually, one thing people have done is ask the caregivers of those animals. For example, in the zoo uh, or in animal labs, research labs, when the animals are there, I'm talking about bigger animals, not rats and mice, same, different kinds of monkeys, for example, apes, orangutans, chimpanzees, etc. So typically, and they live for decades. So there is one staff member who is responsible for some of them. So they establish good relationship. So you can ask that, that staff member about that animal's behavior, and you can rate the animal's behavior. But to answer your question, I think several components of wisdom do exist in many animals. But wisdom as a whole probably is a human entity. Now, I suppose returning to those humans and um, um, self-report measures, uh, you very kindly mentioned your um, scale, um, so the Jesse Thomas uh, Wisdom Index or the SDY scale. Um, So we were curious, did your neuropsychiatry uh, training at all um, inform you to help you devise uh, this scale or if not what, what inspired you to create it? So I, will, I should give credit to my colleague Michael Thomas uh, who is a psychologist and he's an expert in scale development and scale assessment and he's a, he's a brilliant uh, person. Uh, so he was at UCSD and we worked together now he's at Colorado State University, but still we collaborate a lot. And so it was really a great collaboration. Um, I sort of came more from the, the medical background. He came from the psychology and skill development background. So using that, we 
Our first study included more than 500 people from the community. Uh, and this is a somewhat randomly selected sample, a random digit diaring we had used. And so these were 500 plus people from age 20 to 100. Uh, and we gave them, so, I mean, you know, skilled again, development. The first use, of course, start with existing scales. You look at various items, uh, then choose the ones you want. In our case, what happened? We had published a paper on neurobiology of wisdom, which was based on the six components of wisdom that we found were common to the definitions of wisdom in the Gita as well as in the modern Western literature. So we said that we must have measurement of each of these components. So we start. So that was our starting point. So we wanted to develop a wisdom scale that had questions about each of these six components, equal number of questions. So that's so that's important to mention that because if you look at other scales, I mean every scale comes from the philosophy of the developer, and again different people have different philosophy. Nothing wrong with any of them. But mine came more from the neurobiology side because we had published a paper that these six components had these localizations in prefrontal and uh, the big striatum and so on. So then we said, okay, let us develop some items to test each of these. So we looked at the various items that other people had used for each of them. We threw out a lot of them. Then we modified the wording. We gave it to a bunch of people that we know, etc. And so finally, we came up with a list of questions. And then we gave that to these 500 plus people. And we gave that along with some established wisdom scales, like Monica Ardell's three-dimensional wisdom scale, or the SAS, uh, self-assessed wisdom scale that uh, Webster, Dr. Webster had developed. Uh, so those two are probably among the more widely used and better validated scales of wisdom. Uh, so, and then of course the idea is that wisdom correlates with better well-being, happiness, satisfaction. So we use those scales also for all of those things. And based on that, we developed this scale. Um, so the original scale was 24 item scale with four items for each of the six components. Later, we added another component, spirituality. So that was the seventh component. So we developed a 28 item. In the sense, we just added four more items. So it's a 28 item scale. And then this is brand new. Two weeks ago, we had a paper accepted that had abbreviated version of this scale. It has only seven items. One item from each of the components. Because 28 items is, is great for research, but you can't do that in practice. Also, or if you're doing studies in thousands of people, you can't do it long scale. So we had to come up with an abbreviated scale. So we came up with a seven item scale. Uh, and so that we call it Jeste Thomas Wisdom Index. So because both of us uh, are involved in that. And uh, But to answer your question, so the scale development, I can't take uh, any credit from the neuroscience side except for the origin of the concept. So it is uh, Michael Thomas who had the psychometric expertise. So lots of collaboration I'm hearing. That's wonderful. Um, you also mentioned uh, the Gita. Uh, in like uh, both scale development and uh, you mentioned that you have, you know, reviewed the Gita in depth as well. 
Um, so both for practical purposes and in general, what do you think the value of returning uh, to ancient texts is for the purposes of modern science? Does it teach us anything new? I, I really think so. I mean, in the sense, it's really amazing to think about. And it doesn't apply to Gita only. I mean, the same thing applies to Bible. Uh, again, if you look at uh, the Bible, I mean, again, practically every religion stresses the role of empathy, compassion, emotional regulation, self-reflection. So it's not almost rocket science that it is that these are parts of humanity for growth, of, for flourishing and thriving. Right. Not that everybody has these components, but at least people uh, try to do that. So, so what is impressive is that thousands of years ago, people thought about these things. And today we have better science because of technology. And we are showing that they were actually right. I mean, same thing going back to Socrates and uh, Plato and Aristotle. I mean, really, they pioneers of wisdom, right? I mean, Socrates was the one who said that Anybody thinks who is wise is a fool because a wise person knows how much he doesn't know. Uh, so uh, I think what is impressive now, the biological science has advanced so much because of technology. And it is really very comforting in a way to say that these ancient concepts that people had, now we can actually show that they were right. Using the, and again, not always. I mean, th- there were some, you know, uh, wrong um, theories and therapies in the past. So it's not everything is that they said was right, but there are several things that are right. Uh, so I think, so to answer your question, yeah, I think it is important to study what happened because that helps you differentiate things that have stayed true through the centuries and the things that have changed. Mm-hmm. Right? And just to add on to that even more, um, in addition to these things that have stayed the same or are convergent, especially across uh, different geographies, um, what do you think some of the uh, key or important cultural differences could be um, in, in wisdom, especially if, again, it does have this biological basis, if it is in the brain? Sure. No, I think the cultural differences are very important to study. There's no question about that. Whether biology or not doesn't make a difference because culture affects our upbringing, cultural affects our behavior. Because also empathy and compassion are components of wisdom all over the world. They should be. The way you express empathy and compassion varies by culture. For example, in the certain Western cultures, especially say Greek or Italian cultures, they're more expressive. So people would express their emotions. Whereas in Oriental cultures, like Indian culture, or yeah, uh, expression of emotions is not necessarily favored in the sense you if you're happy you don't scream out you know laughing or etc you just you just put a smile on your face and that's it and that people realize you are happy whereas in some of the western cultures and again i'm stereotyping cultures but you know but, but you, you you get the point so so those kinds of cultural differences are important to study so, so my thinking is basic biology doesn't change, but the cultural expression changes. And that is important to know. Now, going to the biology of things and exploring that, um, 
in your uh, study, you also had this um, model on wisdom development, um, you know, and you mentioned uh, the genetic aspects, epigenetic aspects. So it does seem that there's this genetic component of uh, wisdom based on this model. Do you think that there is genetic variability or perhaps like a, a genetic profile with wisdom too? I think so. I think so. I think uh, there haven't been studies of genetics of wisdom and that is because geneticists don't study wisdom. So that's a problem. So we are trying to get a study going here, but of course genetics is very expensive. Uh, and um, so, but nonetheless, you know, I feel optimistic that in a few years we will have something. But I do expect that just like resilience and optimism on which there are lots of genetic studies. Uh, and more, typically, most of these traits have multiple genes associated with them. Uh, these are not, you know, obviously not single gene uh, dominant or recessive, anything like that. These are polygenic uh, structures um, and they affect not presence or absence, but really the degree of the trait. So, um, so, it is, so it is not like somebody has um, major... Say somebody has dementia or no dementia. It's a question of what level of cognitive impairment does the person have? So it's quantitative rather than a qualitative difference. So the genes, when there are multiple genes involved, they are contributing in different ways. Some are for and some are against that particular tree. And so it's a balance between them that ultimately decides what happens. And it is also affected by expression of genes, how much the society or culture allows the expression of certain genes. If it allows expression, probably then the gene will be more obvious than others. So same biology, but behavior could be different. Um, so I don't know if this is a fair recap, but essentially someone could have the potential, biologically speaking, uh, to develop wisdom depending on the environment and many other factors. Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, again, just like smoking... Imagine somebody who has strong genes for alcoholism, but he lives in a culture where there is no alcohol at all. He'll not become alcoholic because he has no access to that. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, on the other hand, somebody who has sort of less genetic predisposition, but there is alcohol all around and everybody is drinking, that person is more likely to be alcoholic. So environment does affect mm -hmm, uh, the gene expression. And now to look at wisdom... Uh, on a larger scale, but still in the brain. Um, so in your articles, you also mentioned uh, in the beginning of our chat, uh, there are different brain regions that have been associated with this wisdom and have been studied separately as well. Um, but do you think that these different brain regions can perhaps come together and say, either create like a wisdom network, so you have something like the salience network for now, like the wisdom network, or could the wise brain simply be one with more, uh, more of a neural efficiency index, or one with higher self-organizing criticality? Great question, really terrific question. Uh, my uh, feeling is that there, there is some kind of a brain, brain uh, neuronal network. Now, whether the network is um, structural in the sense there are fibers joining these different regions, or whether it is chemical that certain kind of neurotransmitter is present in them. So you don't need physical contact or physical connectivity. You don't need a synapse necessarily, but if um, some neurotransmitter that flows through the CSF uh, or blood in the brain 
can have an impact. But I would think that there is some kind of a functional network. Whether it's a structural network or not, I don't know. But there could be some network that facilitates uh, expression of wisdom. Uh, and, and again, it's not either or. It's a question of how much. Uh, uh, and uh, at the same time, one thing to stress is that brain is so complex that there's a risk of oversimplifying again. That these things, you know, so we talk about prefrontal cortex and the big striatum. I mean, every other region is involved in every single thing, right? Um, I remember actually, I used to talk about that initially to make it understandable to lay people. I used to say, think about this the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is like the proverbial father. He tells you what not to do and control yourself. On the other hand, the ventromedial is proverbial mother kind, compassionate, helpful to others. And then I say that, you know, sometimes the father and mother, so they would have a disagreement. What do you do? You go to your uncle. So the proverbial uncle is anterior cingulate. Because anterior cingulate is involved when there is a conflict between dorsolateral and prefrontal. And then sometimes, but you need to go to your friend. Just to, So there's a proverbial friend, which is amygdala, which is just expression of emotions. So... And, you know, people like that. But then also it, it's, it's so simplistic. Uh, and so, so that's something to keep in mind, that on the one hand, we need to simplify science. At the same time, we don't need to make it simplistic. It is a metaphor, though, and we do uh, understand a lot of things using metaphor. And I have to say, in my five years of neuroscience, I've never heard of those personifications. And I personally love them. So thank you so much for that. Um and so now to, so you mentioned there might be like this chemical um, activation of a network and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe I remember there was serotonin and dopamine uh, partic- particularly um, that you identified. Um, so our lab had a go at, um, you know, uh, creating a graphical, graphical representation of um, uh, your reviews from 2019 to 2020. Um, so we were curious and hopeful. We were wondering um, whether they were a fair representation of your ideas and whether there's something we should change. I think that, that, that's a great point. And I'm glad really you're doing research on that because it's really such an important area. So few people are doing that. So I really compliment you and uh, really wish you all the best because we need studies of that kind. Um, the one thing, again, is I think, again, we don't know so much of neuroscience that probably there are and it's not going to be something as simple as just increase in dopamine means this and decrease no i mean it's not like that i mean as um so schizophrenia is associated with increased dopaminergic activity but it's not increased dopaminergic activity everywhere it is only in certain and also there are different kinds of dopamine receptors d1 d2 d3 d4 uh, and then only certain kinds of receptors are involved there are also some receptors that are that favor neurotransmission. Some inhibit that. So these are called autoreceptors, so on and so forth. So very, very, very likely that there are a bunch of receptors that we don't even know of today that we'll discover in the next 10 years or 20 years. And they may be at the center of what we are talking about. So that's the issue with digressing a little bit, but with mental illnesses. All serious mental illnesses are brain disorders. There's no question about that. But where in the brain, we don't know that. 
unlike Alzheimer's disease where you can just do an MRI, you can diagnose Alzheimer's based on just looking at the MRI. I'm exaggerating a bit, but not too much. In schizophrenia, serious mental illness, people die and still the brain looks exactly normal. It's, it cannot be normal. It cannot be normal. But we don't know what that abnormality is, right? So, so that's where actually the neuroscience research will be going in the next so many years and perhaps decades where we, we can pinpoint what chemical and what specific receptor is involved in that. And same thing applies to wisdom, that what uh, specific uh, chemical and receptor is involved in empathy. Uh, you know, there could be different receptors for compassion toward yourself versus compassion to others. I really think there it is true because women have more compassion toward others than men. But women don't have more compassion toward yourself, toward themselves. Actually, either there is no difference or men have more compassion toward themselves than women. So it is likely that it is something that is, um, you know, so in a way, you're talking about the same thing, empathy, compassion, but depending on the target, different um, neural mechanisms may be involved. Absolutely. I suppose hopefully we'll come up with a way to look at the brain uh, in the quote-unquote right way. Um, I personally did have a lot of problems like serotonin, for instance. It's, it's global. You know, it's all around the brain. I, I had such challenges actually uh, depicting it in the uh, graphical model. Um, but I suppose going back to your model um, as well for the wisdom development, um, I was curious, you, you mentioned the Harold effect in it, so the hemispheric asymmetry reduction in older adults. Um, so I'd love to clarify, if possible, um, in your model, is the Harold effect task-dependent or is it also happening uh, at rest? Because I, I think that might be important for wisdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the answer is like, yes, it, it is task dependent. No question about that. It doesn't. It is not generalized. But the idea is this. So you know, as I said, I'm a geriatric psychiatrist, and the usual notion is that with aging, uh, the brain shrinks, the brain loses neurons, synapses, and people develop dementia. That's not entirely true. I mean, we see people in their 80s and 90s who are sharper in their brain functioning than some 20 year olds, right? And so. Because when I went to medical school, I was taught that, you know, all the growth and development of the brain occurs in the first 20 years of life. After that, the brain stays stable from 20 to 50, 55, 60, and then it's all declined. That's the usual notion. And that's so wrong because this neuroplasticity of aging, and that really clearly research has shown in the last 30 years, including animals consistently, that those who are active, physically, cognitively, socially, the brain continues to evolve. There is development of new synapses, even new neurons in subcortical regions. Uh, and so, so one of those phenomena is this uh, Harold effect. So, 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 think, so the example I give, uh, metaphor I use is, when I was young, I could push a heavy cart with one hand. Now, so I get older and I have arthritis, so I can't use one. But if I use both hands, actually, I can push the cart. So I can still push the cart using two. So th that's what happens in a way with this uh, Harold effect, that at the younger age, there is lateralization of function. And only one hemisphere would be enough. But at older age, you really need more neurons to be involved. And so both sides need to be involved 
and then only you can do that activity. But you can do that activity if both sides are involved. But that would happen if you keep your brain active. Because that means you're trying to keep your, by doing different things, whether it is crossword puzzle, Sudoku, learning new game, or, uh, you know, musical instrument, whatever it is, keep yourself active cognitively. Then, and of course, physically, socially also. Then you will see these compensatory changes, like Harold effect, uh, which will facilitate uh, increase in components of wisdom. I see. So there's this temporal aspect to it as well, you know, because of aging. Um, but so this is for wisdom development naturally. Um, but again, we're very interested in educating for wisdom as well. And you also um, briefly mentioned this in the beginning of our chat. Um, so what about neuropsychological models uh, to educate for wisdom? Uh, do you think we have the potential to make that in the future? It's a great point. <laughs> I don't think we have to teach wisdom. We have to learn to teach wisdom because society needs wisdom. I mean, this is, today's society is in terrible shape. I mean, there is, again, this Gallup poll study show that the level of stress, depression, anxiety, and anger has gone up something like 40% in the last 15 years. This is in the U.S., um, Canada is probably doing better than U.S., <laughs> but uh, no, I think Canada has much better emotional control than U.S. does, <laughs> and also more empathy and compassion. So there are more wisdom in Canada than it is here. But seriously, actually, the uh, things have, have become worse here in the last 20 years or so. I mean, it's not true only about U.S. I mean, that's true about many European countries and African and Asian countries also. So there is, I think, because of growth of technology and globalization, life has become much harder today, especially for younger people than it was um, 20 years ago. So, so we have published several papers, actually, that show that loneliness and wisdom go in opposite directions. So we published several cross-sectional studies. Uh, we just had, actually, longitudinal study completed. But even biologically, published a study on EEG and another on microbiome where wisdom and loneliness went in the opposite directions. So wisdom is associated with better health, physical, mental, cognitive, whereas loneliness is associated with worse physical, right? So what that means is that wisdom may be the vaccine for the loneliness pandemic. And when I talk about loneliness, it's not just loneliness. Loneliness increases suicides, opioid abuse various stress levels, social isolation. And that is what the society is suffering from. So there is a great need for educating the population on wisdom. We need to teach people right from kindergarten um, about how to be empathic and compassionate, how to be self-reflective, how to control your emotion, how to accept different perspectives. So that's really critical and we need to find ways in which we can do that. Uh, and it's not a neuroscience model for education there. <laughs> None exists. I mean, it will have to be psychological model, psychosocial model. Uh, and um, but we have to do that. I, I just uh, for the society to survive, let alone thrive and flourish, uh, we need to change the things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right now, it's mostly on survival mode for yeah. so many folks, I believe. Um, and so you were alluding to this as well. Um, but just to 
unfortunately, wrap up uh, with our last question. Um, what do you imagine for the science of wisdom, for the future of the science of wisdom? What interesting avenues do you think would be fruitful to explore to advance uh, this field? I think I'm excited about the future of wisdom research. I think um, it will grow. It has to grow. We need it. The society needs it. And then things do change. I mean, I, I'm basically an optimist. Uh, so what will happen in future? One is um, clearly we need to know more about the neuroscience of wisdom. And that will happen as the neuroscience advances in general. Again, and with the rapid advances in technology, we will be able to study the brain much better than we are today. Uh, neurochemistry, again, we talked about these chemicals and receptors. Again, as the science advances, we'll be able to do that much better. Uh, I mean, right now we are doing in a crude way. Uh, so the subtle things will happen as we learn more about neuroscience. So that that is actually an Im important area. Um, second is biology in general, in the sense if we find the chemicals that are associated with it. And there are actually already examples of, for example, oxytocin is associated with empathy and compassion. Um, estrogen, again, why women are more compassionate, well, I think that has something to do with estrogen. The problem is this, that estrogen and oxytocin, they have so many different effects, so many actions, that what we are using, they are not the right choices of treatment. We need to find a very specific variant of estrogen or progesterone that has very specific action that will increase empathy and compassion without any side effect. So we'll find some other chemical that will increase emotional regulation. Actually, we we have drugs to control ADHD, right? Uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. That means we have medications for impulse control. And that is similar to emotional regulation. Um, similarly, happiness, well-being. We have antidepressants, which improve the mood. We have stimulants that improve the mood. So, so this is not some fantasy concept. So, but in future, again, as our knowledge of chemistry and pharmacology improves, we'll be able to identify some chemicals that have very specific effects on specific compounds. I don't think there's going to be a single pill that will increase wisdom, but there could be, you know, it's like multivitamins. So we could have um, multivitamin types of things that would improve different components of wisdom. And it depends on what I need. So, Let's say, you know, I'm less compassionate than my wife is. So I need something on compassion, whereas I'm a bit more decisive than my wife is. So she may use something for decisiveness. I can I make, you know, she's much better than me and everything. But So you, you get the point that, that we, we don't need a single wisdom pill. We need something that will improve specific components that are lacking in individuals. We all have some strengths. We all have limitations. So we don't need too much of everything. So again, it's multivitamin. I may need B12, for example, and somebody else may need vitamin C. So, so that's how I see this chemical or pharmacological growth. And thirdly, technology. I mean, I, I feel strongly about that. You know, we have artificial intelligence. And so what is artificial intelligence? It's very smart. It can perform calculations that, you know, humans would need a million years and it can do that in five seconds. And it can beat uh, um, IBM Watson and it can beat uh, Jeopardy. That is intelligence. That's not wisdom. What we need is, uh, we wrote a paper on that. Actually, we, 
we need to move from artificial intelligence to artificial wisdom. So we need robots. You know, right now we have this Google and Siri and, you know, the, any question you ask and they have an answer ready. That's okay. But we need something more. We need a coach, an assistant, secretary, companion, or robot who can serve all those functions, who can also help calm us down when we are stressed out, which can help us control our emotions. It can also make decisions that are not just utilitarian, but they are good for other people, not just for ourselves. It can also help us self-reflect and self-correct. And again, this is not fantasy. I think this will happen uh, if we get together where computer scientists, engineers meet with, you know, work with psychologists and psychiatrists and neuroscientists and ethicists and philosophers. And but, But that's what the robot should be doing. Right. And again, I'm optimistic that this will happen. So, I mean, again, robots won't have mind of their own. They won't have a soul. That's not the issue. But they can understand. I think anything we can teach our kid, we should be able to teach the machines, except that they don't have their own. That's in a way good. They have no emotions. So you don't need to worry about emotional regulation. Right. I'm curious. Um, I don't know if you know, <laughs> Gary Kasparov is I think, one of the first who lost to a computer. Uh, he's a, say he was a world chess champion and he lost to a computer. <laughs> but then he devoted many years, I think he's still on, on this, um, so sort of meditating on this. And then he, he discovered that people and computers together were actually superior. Even amateur chess players who had a computer program assisting them beat chess champions and also computers. <laughs> so, I agree with you. But, but, but whatever is that personal human thing that that person brings, we can install maybe not 100%, but 95% of that in a machine. So, because I mean, it will be ideal to have a computer and a person, but increasingly that's going to be harder. And, you know, especially for specialists. So if we have a computer which can be almost as good as a human, because then you can actually, we're talking about education, right? So if we develop a robot that can teach wisdom, and again, there will be different varieties of robots. Some will teach kindergarten kids, some will teach medical students, some will teach uh, philosophy students, so on and so forth. But I think we need some kind of ways in which we can educate huge masses of people. So it is like, again, vaccination right now. The big problem is that the vaccines are not reaching people because we have to vaccinate each person separately. Let's say if we were able to vaccinate 1,000 people at one time, I don't know how, but in future, I think that could be possible, you know, or you just take something and whatever it is. But for education, clearly we need that, that um, we need massive or mass level training to improve. Uh, and um, so, so I agree with you, Michelle, that, that, you know, right now, machine plus computer is the best thing. But in future, the machine should do almost as well. Again, not perfectly as well but 95% as well as a human. For any fun readings that um, folks would like to do, um, what you said, Dr. Geste, reminded me of um, this book called Clara and the Sun, uh, this example of artificial wisdom and essentially use the word companion. So it's essentially this robot companion that children had and it taught them socio-emotional development and uh, social skills and, you know, so many different things. So that's exactly... Uh, what it reminded me of. Absolutely. Right, right. 
right? No, exactly. So, the, so that's a robot that is a friend, that is an assistant, that is a therapist, a coach, all in one. And I think we need that again, as people, especially with with aging. You know, people uh, after they lose their spouse and there's a lot of loneliness, social isolation. They need a friend, and it's hard to get a human friend. You can have pet, but the pets are, you know, they, they have, uh, they're not perfect in the sense as a therapist, advisor, you need something else. And so I see tremendous potential for this robotic growth and these robots, which are, which don't have just AI, but actually AW, artificial wisdom. Now, you're also reminding me of, for example, I mean, this big controversy is now happening with Facebook, <laughs> where, you know, there's, uh, where there's sort of these social media platforms bring out, sort of, they, they convey misinformation. Um, but if you could imagine the opposite of, to something like that, which um, say some sort of social platform that actually like made people wiser. Um, but that's a great point. No, actually, I didn't think of that. You're absolutely right. I mean, right now, we worry about the social media because the bad people take advantage of the social media. They, these fake theories and the conspiracy theories and so on, they spread. But how about spreading some good word? right? How about spreading some kindness and empathy and compassion? That would be possible, right? I mean, if you can spread bad things, you must be able to spread good things too. And I think we're heading into a sort of a realm maybe of more of social policy. You know, so for example, now yes. it seems like these companies are not held accountable for anything that's said on their platform. And so they don't worry. It makes money and they're not, they're not concerned. Uh, but if there was something that actually promoted and rewarded, say, this type of um, sort of positive activity, right. we imagine it would be right. much more prevalent. Exactly, exactly. And I agree. And actually, I feel optimistic there. I mean, it's mm. just like, look at the climate change issue. Mm. I mean, 10 years ago, nobody would have given a, you know, I mean, even five years ago, people said, oh, nobody's like, going to accept that because, oh, you know, it costs so much and then, you know, nobody's interested. Today, it has changed a lot. I mean, the young people are demanding Um and the companies now realize actually they can make money, hmm. like the Tesla. Yeah. I mean, Tesla is uh, Elon Musk is the richest person in the world. Hmm. He's selling electric cars. Hmm. And so I think ultimately what will happen is that selling good things will be financially empowering. Hmm. And so people will turn to good, hmm. not because it is good, but because they make money out of good things. Hmm. Well, there are even, you know, as you, I, I've heard anyway, sort of, you know, brand image, these types of things, they are um, even now important, right? So I think you're, you're right. Well, I'm also an optimist. So this is what I hope, you know, that um, people get fed up also of like the, the negative effects that come out of it, right? Right, right. And we have to be optimistic, you know, but the alternative of being pessimistic is not helpful. <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, we have to do what we can do. And, and it's, you know, it's a, uh, so every little thing we do is helpful, I think. Uh, and then we can transmit that because sometimes what I see happening is that people give up. Uh, you know, people are so upset, so frustrated, everything going down. Well, you know, it's just like when the COVID started, it looks so bleak, so bleak in the U.S. especially. I mean, U.S. has the highest death rate. I think what three quarters of a million people uh, have died of COVID. And yet, Today is almost totally controlled and, you know, no. So, so the same thing I feel that we could, you know, we would improve just like climate change. Again, it will happen. 
This is incredibly cheesy, but I feel like the action items for today are stay positive and study the neuroscience of wisdom. <laughs> and that is the way to go. Um, Dr. Geste, thank you so, so much again uh, for speaking with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. 